Today's sermon comes from Luke 17, 1 through 10. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If you were to think about, I want you to think about the last handful of hard seasons that you've walked through in your life. Maybe a hard week of your life or just a hard season. If you were to think about the last handful of of difficult, hard seasons in life, I think you would find a common thread, at least for most of them. You'd find this common thread when you look back at the hard seasons in your life. And, one, and, and, and the common thread you'd find in a lot of them is relational tension. You think about it. That a lot of the seasons we walk through that are difficult are some way connected to some sort of relational tension. Whether it's in marriage, or whether it's raising children with children, whether it's at work with a boss or a coworker, whether it's in a, in a, in a friend circle, that relationships are hard. From marriage all the way to friendships, relationships are hard. Now the question you have to ask is why? Why? And I'm gonna give you two answers before we plunge in here. Why are relationships hard? Let me start with this, with one of the greatest mysteries of the Bible, and that is the Trinity. Every time I, I talk to my children, or most every time I talk to my children about the Trinity, I get this answer. So it's one God, three persons. Well, then it must be three gods. No, no, one God, three persons. Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. The, the, the Trinity's a mystery. We all agree with that. But here's what's not a mystery about the Trinity. What's not a mystery is that God has chosen to reveal himself as triune, meaning Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That God has existed from eternity past in a community of relationships. Father to Son, Son to Spirit, Spirit to Father. And for that reason, relationships are absolutely intrinsic to the structure of our world absolutely intrinsic to the structure of you, how we're wired. So relationships, community, friendships, that they're not created, they're actually foundational to the world. They're foundational to who we are. And that's why we are relational beings. To be a person means to be in relationship. And so relationships are Genesis 1 and 2, beautiful because God's made us that way and it's flowing out of who he is. He's a relational God from eternity past. 
Now, why are they hard? Well, Genesis 3, sin entered the world, which has made this beautiful entity called relationship that is the, out of the foundation of who God is, it's what's made it hard. So marriage is hard. <laughs> Friendships are hard, right? Co- coworkers and work relationships are hard. The question becomes, if we understand relationships to be foundational to who we are in this world and how we're created, but they're hard because of sin, then how do we steward them well? We're in this series on stewardship, which means that God owns everything, and he calls us to simply steward, right, or manage what he owns. One of the things is relationships that he owns relationships belong to God because they flow out of who he is. So the question becomes then, how do we steward relationships well? How do I steward my marriage for God's purposes? How do I steward my friendships, my coworkers? How do I steward them for God's glory and for his purposes? To steward relationships well, we're gonna look at the culture of grace, the culture of restoration, and the culture of joyful dependence that stewarding relationships requires all three of these facets of a culture of grace, restoration, and joyful dependence. Let's start with a culture of grace. So verses one and two, Jesus here is speaking to his disciples, just to his disciples. He's not speaking to the crowds. And he says some harsh things in verses one and two. He says, temptation is sure to come. We all go, amen. We're in a broken and fallen world. Temptations come, yes. But, Jesus says, woe to those through whom they come. In other words, woe to those who are causing sin. And he says it would be better if that person, and it gets pretty harsh here. He says it'd be better if that person died, millstone around the neck, drowned than to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, there's two huge questions that come out of this. Who are the ones that Jesus is speaking about that are causing people to sin? And who are the little ones? This is where context is so important. This is where we get in trouble. We rip verses out of the Bible and kind of come up with our own interpretation. But Luke, as he wrote this gospel, in the very beginning in chapter one, he says he wrote an orderly account. That means that he laid it out with purpose and that everything hangs together. So the two questions, who are the ones that Jesus is speaking about that are causing people to sin and who are the little ones being tempted to sin are answered in the previous two chapters. So in Luke chapter 15, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. See, the Pharisees were treating sinners and tax collectors of the day with great disdain and contempt and arrogance and self-righteousness. They looked down their nose at those awful, rotten sinners. And then we see in Luke chapter 16, after Jesus speaks a parable on not serving two masters, God and money, he says this to the Pharisees, who were ridiculing him. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. So Jesus calls out their hypocrisy, simply saying, the image that you're projecting is not consistent with what's in your heart. Right, the person that you're projecting is not consistent with who you truly are. That's hypocrisy. 
and he calls them out. Then the last half of Luke 16, he tells the parable of a rich man who flaunted his money and flaunted his status while a poor man lay sick at his doorstep. Out of that, in Luke 17, he says, woe to those who cause these little ones to sin. Now we see who he's talking about. The ones that were causing people to sin were the Pharisees of the day. Through their self-righteousness, through their arrogance, through their pride, through their looking down on, 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 on the sinners of the day. And the little ones that were being tempted to sin were the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, the sinners of the day. Now you say, how exactly were they causing them to sin? Well, at the core of sin, we talk about sin in behavioral terms all the time. And yes, there are behaviors attached to sin, no doubt. But at the core of sin is unbelief or wrong belief. And the Pharisees, by their words and actions, were proclaiming loudly that God won't accept you until you clean up your act. That was their message by their behavior and their words that God will not welcome you until you start obeying and performing and cleaning yourself up. And so these little ones, these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these sinners who were lost and were hopeless and knew it from the Pharisees were hearing this gospel of works. You go clean yourself up, then you come to God and he'll, he'll welcome you. That's a false gospel. That is not what the gospel teaches. It teaches that you come to God as you are, full of your sin, and he meets you where you're at. And then by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the greatest act of sacrifice and grace there is, he removes your sin. But do you see how they were causing the little ones to sin? By their self-righteousness. And interesting, who were they drawn to? The tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes of the day. They weren't drawn to the Pharisees. They were flocking to Jesus. Why? Because he came in grace with the message of hope that your sin is not the end of the world, that you're not defined by your sin. I've come to take it away from you. And you say, what does this have to do with stewarding the relationships God has given you? Let me ask a diagnostic question here. When someone looks down their nose at you, when someone judges you, when someone gives off the holier-than-thou vibe, what happens to that relationship? I mean, do you move towards that person? No, you move away from that. You move, you move further away from relationship when you face that. Or let me dial it up this way. When you're struggling with fear and anxiety and your spouse belittles you for feeling that way or gives you a rational reason why you shouldn't be feeling that way or gives you the get over it vibe, do you feel connected to your spouse? No. Why? Because self-righteousness and judgment 
and arrogance and hypocrisy undermine and destroy relationships. It moves people away from each other. You steward relationships in a culture of grace. Why? Because your relationship with God is stewarded in a culture of grace. And so our relationship with God being stewarded in a culture of grace means that then horizontally in our relationships, we steward them in a culture of grace because that's what draws people together into beautiful relationships of love and grace and mercy. Does your marriage swim in a culture of grace? Do your children swim in a culture of grace at home? Do your employees or the, or the employees on your team swim in a culture of grace at work? Do your friendships swim in a culture of grace? How do you steward the relationships God has given you? That's, that's the first, in a culture of grace. But second, it's in a culture of restoration, a culture of restoration. So Jesus moves here from teaching on causing someone to sin to what do you do when someone actually does sin? And he gives two commands. When someone does sin, when the situation comes up that someone is in sin, what do you do? He gives two commands. He says, rebuke and forgive. Now, those two seem drastically different. Rebuke means to confront and then forgive. They seem drastically different. They're actually very similar because they have the same goal. Rebuking and forgiving have the same goal, and that is to produce a community of relationships where the destructive effects of sin are not allowed to eat and devour those relationships. That the whole goal of rebuking and forgiving is to keep the destructive effects of sin from destroying those relationships. That's the common goal, to keep the destructive effects of sin at bay. L let me explain this through the most amazing video game ever invented. You ready? Most amazing video game ever invented, Pac-Man. Now, if you don't know what Pac-Man is, you haven't lived. Google it, go find a video ar ar arcade where it's at and, and play it. It's, a, it's an amazing game. Here's how Pac-Man works. Pac-Man moves through a maze, eating up dots. And there's four ghosts in the game that are trying to kill Pac-Man. And in the, in the four corners of the maze are, are, are four bright flashing dots called power pellets. And when Pac-Man eats a power pellet, he has the temporary ability to eat the ghosts, to devour them, to consume them. Rebuking and forgiving are like the power pellets, that when you rebuke and you forgive, you consume and put at bay the destructive effects of sin that are attempting to kill relationships. Now, here's the other part of the game. When you eat a ghost and its eyes go back into the center box, what happens? It regenerates. Ghost comes back out, tries to kill Pac-Man again. That's how sin works. It is, it is vying to separate you, to divide you to, from, in your relationships. And that's why rebuking and forgiving 
are rhythms, not just one time, but the constant rhythm in relationships because you're constantly putting at bay the destructive effects of sin. Now let's look at both of them. Rebuking and forgiving. Let's start with rebuking. What does it mean? Well, to rebuke, simply put, it means to call out sin. It means to confront someone. This is incredibly hard to do. And as hard as it is to do, it's one of the most loving things that you can do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes this. He says, there's no kindness more cruel than the kindness which consigns another person to their sin. When you confront someone in their sin, it's one of the kindest things you can do, but here's the key. It all comes down to motivation. And there are two motivations that can drive you to confront someone in their sin. It's either revenge or it's love. You can confront someone in their sin and try to inflict pain, to try to get them back for how they've hurt you. You can confront to inflict pain or you can confront in an attempt to love that person and rescue them. Think about a shepherd's staff. You know what a shepherd's staff looks like, right? There's the, there's the pointed end and then there's the crook or the hook end, right? A shepherd uses one end of the staff for different reasons, right? The pointed end of the shepherd's staff is used as a weapon to ward off predators and to ward off enemies. The hook end of the staff is used to pull sheep back that have gone astray. Rebuking is like the hook end of the staff. It's not the pointed end, which is a weapon. No, it's an instrument of rescue. That's what rebuking is. It's an instrument of rescue that says, I love this person so much. I don't want to see sin destroy them and just destroy this relationship, right? So rebuking is an instrument of rescue. Now let's look at the second command, forgiveness. Jesus says rebuke, and then he says forgive. What does it mean to forgive? Well, Jesus is gonna teach us two important truths here about forgiveness. Two important truths. The first is this. It's not optional. It's not a good suggestion. It's a command. Jesus commands it. He does it twice, right? Verse three, he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Then again, at the end of verse four, with added emphasis, he says, you must forgive him. Now, what's the difference there? What you're seeing in English is the attempt to distinguish between the forgive him and you must forgive him is the distinguishing between two Greek verbs that have a a different tense. Now, I'm gonna get a little, I'm gonna geek out here on Greek for a second, but you'll see why, because it's very important. In verse three, when Jesus says, forgive him, he uses the imperative verb form. And that means an imperative is one that it's a command with possibility. So it may happen, it may not happen. It's a command that has the possibility of happening or not happening. When Jesus in verse four says you must forgive him, he uses, it's the same Greek verb, but he uses the indicative verb form. 
And the indicative means that it's not just a possibility, it's actual and real, meaning it's, it's already been accomplished. And what's amazing in verse four is when Jesus says you must forgive him, he uses the indicative, which means this isn't just a possibility, it's actual and real, it's already happened. And he uses the future tense. Now you tie those together and what Jesus is saying is that your forgiveness of someone who will hurt you in the future needs to be a present reality. That somebody's gonna hurt you in the future. You don't even know how they're gonna hurt you. And what Jesus is saying is right now in the present, you have already forgiven them. That's how sure it must be. Uh, we're going on a family vacation to Disney this summer. And we found in, uh, this was a couple months ago, uh, my wife was strolling through Publix and found these amazing Florida resident Disney, four-day Disney deal, and went and got it. It's, uh, I mean, phenomenal. But you buy the card, and, and they said, do not lose this card. Because what you do when you show up, it's not a ticket. You show up and you give them the card and they give you the tickets that day for whatever park you're gonna to go to. So I have these cards in lock and safe in my room. Locked down, because I'm not gonna lose them, right? I don't have the tickets yet, but I own them by nature of this card. And it's not a question. When I show up at Disney World and show them the card, they're not gonna go, um, I don't know, we might give you tickets, we might not, it's really up in the air, no. I own the tickets now, even though they're not in my hand. That's what Jesus is saying with forgiveness. Somebody's gonna hurt you in the future. That's a given. You, you need to forgive them now. That your forgiveness needs to be a present reality now. That's how sure it is. It's a command, it's not optional. Second truth that Jesus is teaching here on forgiveness is that there's no limits to it. There's no limits to it. Look at verse four. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, if you combine this with what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 22 to Peter, when Peter says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? And you know how Jesus answers? 70 times seven. Now, the number seven in the Bible, it's, a, it's symbolic for completion, perfection. So when Jesus said 70 times seven, he was basically saying infinity times, always, over and over, you're to forgive. That forgiveness has no limits. Now, let me, let me make an important distinction here because some of you might be running somewhere with this. It's not, where Jesus is, it's not what Jesus is talking about, but let me make the distinction. Forgiveness has no limits. Trust has limits, right? So, so somebody sins against you over and over and over and over. Jesus says you forgive them every time. Now, you might have some trust eroded. And trust has to be earned back. But forgiveness is not earned and forgiveness has no limits. Trust, 
eroded trust, maybe set up, there's some boundaries that are healthy. That's not what he's talking about here, but I'm trying to make a distinction. For some of you, you might say, what if it happens over and over and over? Am I supposed to forgive them over and over and over? And the answer is yes, because forgiveness is absorbing the cost. It is simply saying, that person has hurt me and I'm gonna absorb that pain and not inflict it back on them. You say, what if they hurt me over and over and over? You absorb that pain over and over and over. And you don't hurt them back. That's what it means. That's what Jesus means when he says, forgiveness has no limits. You see here, rebuking and forgiving produces a culture of restoration. A culture of restoration. The absence of restoration in a community is just as deadly as the presence of sin. I want you to hear that. The presence of sin is deadly to a community. The absence of restoration is deadly to a community because the absence of restoration says there's no getting beyond your past failures. There's no getting beyond the bitterness in your relationship. There's no getting beyond the I've written that person off. Right? Restoration is what brings a relationship back together. Here's the question to ask, and I ask this in the community of your marriage, the community of your family, the community of your work team, the community of your small group, your community group, the community of this church. Here's the question. Is a community recognized simply for being a, watched, a watchdog about sin, or does it have a reputation for compassion that seeks quickly and unconditionally to restore a sinner even again and again? That's a culture of restoration. So you steward the relationships that God has given you through a culture of grace, through a culture of restoration, and then finally, through a culture of joyful dependence. How do the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching about forgiveness? Namely, that it's not optional, it's a command, as good is done now, even though it may happen in the future, and that there's no limits. How do they respond? Jesus, good solid teaching on forgiveness and rebuking. We got that covered. Let's move on to the next one. That's really easy. No, look at verse five. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. In other words, that's impossible. And for those of you that are alive and have a pulse, you agree with the disciples because you know how hard it is to forgive. You know how easy it is to hold on to the pain that someone has inflicted upon you and to hold on to it and to control it and to release it back, right? To get them back, to inflict the pain back. That's easy. That's our fallen flesh. I will hold on to the hurt because it feels so good just when I want to, to just jam it right back at them. What's hard is to absorb that pain over and over and over and over with no limits. And that's what Jesus is saying. And the response is, that's impossible. And the answer is, that's true. It is impossible. In and of yourself, it's impossible. Look what Jesus says in verse six. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. 
What's Jesus saying here? No task assigned by the Lord, even the task of forgiving without limits is impossible if you are functionally depending on Jesus Christ in faith. That to be a person that forgives freely and repeatedly, to absorb that pain that someone inflicts on you over and over, you have to be functionally connected to Jesus by faith. Why? Well, I go back to the point I made that Jesus was making by using those two different verb forms. That when he said, you must forgive, meaning that your forgiveness of that person who will hurt you in the future is a present reality now. It's that sure. You've already decided now, I'm gonna forgive them. I don't even know how they're gonna hurt me. I'm gonna forgive them. If you're in Christ, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, do you understand that the sin that you will commit this week, not if, the sin that you will commit this week has already been forgiven by Jesus. It has already been nailed to the cross. That the sin that you're gonna commit this week and in the coming year, Jesus is not wringing his hands going, huh, I wonder if I'll forgive them. That really hurt. Right? Our sin grieves God. It does. Jesus isn't wondering, am I gonna forgive them? No, it's done. It's finished. Your sin, past, present, and future, has been nailed to the cross. It's done. Can somebody say amen? Yes. Yes, thank you. It's gone. Jesus isn't trying to figure it out. Am I going to forgive him? So why wouldn't you commit now in your marriage, your friendships, your family? Commit now to forgiving those people who will hurt you. See, you're, if, if you're, if you are struggling to forgive someone, There is a lack of understanding to some degree of how much Jesus has forgiven you. If you're struggling to forgive someone, struggling to just absorb that pain and not give it back, it's because functionally there's some gap in your understanding of how much Jesus has forgiven you that the ability to forgive flows out of Jesus' forgiveness of you. In fact, in Matthew 18, when Peter asked Jesus, how many times am I supposed to forgive this person? And Jesus says 70 times seven. In other words, infinite number of times. You know what parable he tells next? He tells the parable of the man who was forgiven this massive debt by the king, massive debt. And then he turned around to one of his servants who owed him a tiny, minuscule amount compared to that massive debt and demanded that that man pay him back. You see, Jesus is saying, if you understand how much I've forgiven you, and I've done it joyfully, I don't hold it, I've done it joyfully, then you will be a person who can forgive freely. When you depend on Jesus in faith and trust. And it's not only a culture of dependence that Jesus is talking about here. 
but he's talking about a culture of joyful dependence. The joyful part is what he's getting at in verses 7 to 10. So if you look at that little tiny parable he tells in verses 7 to 10, it's a difficult parable. But, but here's, a, here's, I believe, what it's teaching. It's talking about doing what Jesus commands, not begrudgingly, but with gladness of heart. See, it's, it's actually a little parable about what happens when you don't have faith like a mustard seed. When you're not functionally depending on Jesus, his commands become burdensome. When you're not functionally depending on Jesus, faith like a mustard seed, the command to forgive becomes burdensome. Like this servant in the parable, this kind of cold, calculating servant who will only do exactly what he's told to do and nothing more and where his duty has no delight to it. Right after this parable is what? The story of the 10 lepers who were cleansed. And Jesus tells the lepers, go show yourself to the priest. They all do that. They obey Jesus' command. Only one of them returns and thanks God and praises Jesus and is full of joy. And on top of it, who is the one that returns? It's a Samaritan. It's a foreigner. Right? Even highlighting more the cold, joyless, calculated obedience of the Pharisees. Jesus says, listen, when I tell you to forgive, it's not an option. When I tell you to forgive without limits, I want you to do it joyfully. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What was the joy set before him? It was restored relationship with you and me, with his people. For the joy set before him, he endured absorbing the pain and the cost. And what we see here is that restored relationship for Jesus overshadowed the pain of absorbing the cost that was required for forgiveness. And so too with us, he's saying, with the joy of restored relationship, overshadow the cost, the pain that it takes to absorb how somebody has hurt you and not turn it back on them. Restored relationship. The joy of that would overshadow the cost. When you forgive someone who has really hurt you, you get to experience what your Lord and Savior experienced in forgiving you. And so we steward relationships in a culture of grace, in a culture of restoration, in a culture of joyful dependence on Christ the one who has restored us to himself. And I go back to where I started. Relationships are beautiful. They are, to be a person means to be in relationship because God is in relationship. He's a relational God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we do it in the midst of a fallen and broken world, so it's hard. In a recent interview, Alain de Baton, he's a famous British atheist, a famous philosopher, but he's an atheist. Listen to what he said in this interview. I love the concept of original sin. He's an atheist. I love the concept of Genesis 3, he says, right? Original sin. 
The idea that we're all fundamentally broken and fundamentally incomplete. When asked why, Dave Baton explained, because original sin seems to be great. I mean, it seems to be such a useful starting point. Imagine a relationship in which two people think they're great, you know, perfect. That's going to lead to intolerance and terrible disappointment when they realize that they're not perfect. Whereas imagine a relationship that begins under the idea that two people are quite broken and therefore they need forgiveness. When asked to define broken, he replied, by broken, I mean not quite right. So that's why the concept of original sin seems so plausible and applicable and also kind. Because it basically says, look, when you meet someone new, just assume that something major has gone wrong here. Treat everybody you meet as though they were laboring under some really big problem, basically. That's the starting point of any encounter. That's the starting point of any relationship. Listen, we believe in common grace. He nailed it in some ways here. We believe in common grace. That our relationships are hard because of sin, but when we understand the fall and our brokenness, we enter into relationships, what? Committing to forgive now the hurt that will be inflicted in the future. Committing to forgive now the hurt that will be inflicted in the future. You steward your relationships, whether it's your marriage, your friendships, your work team, your children, your family, whatever it may be, whatever community it is, you steward them well in a culture of grace, in a culture of restoration, and in a culture of joyful dependence. Let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be nailed to a cross, to endure unspeakable pain emotionally, physically, as he absorbed the sin in the world. Father, thank you that for those of us in Christ that we stand today forgiven. Father, I pray for those here that aren't in Christ, that maybe have never trusted you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior, that they would trust you today and receive forgiveness. And Father, would you, out of our relationship with you and the culture of grace that we swim in with you, would you make us a forgiving people and a people that do confront sin, but that do it in love with a heart to rescue? Would you make us a people of restoration and a people that do it out of this rugged dependence on you, Jesus? that your power would flow through us and that we would do it joyfully. Would you make us a people that forgive joyfully? And Father, I pray for 
those here that maybe have been holding on to a hurt and to pain that has been inflicted upon them by someone and that they're, they're controlling it and, and, and giving it back here and there. I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would bring them to a place where they can truly and thoroughly forgive that person and absorb the cost. And we pray for restoration of that relationship. Father, as we continue to worship, would you remind us of how much we have been forgiven? And would we sing with joyful voices songs of praise and sacrifices of praise in response? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.